we're going to be talking today about cross training. And we're talking about what the cross reveals about sin. Okay? What the cross reveals about sin. Romans 6.23. Probably all of you are familiar with this verse. It says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. As I said, the cross reveals an incredible amount to us about sin. So many people today in our society and oftentimes in the church and oftentimes in the pastorate take sin so lightly. Ah, it's just a little white lie. Everybody's doing it. We'll look across the pew or we'll look at across the table and we'll see someone else who says they're a Christian and we'll say, well, they're doing it. And so we begin to justify ourselves. It's only a little bit. We use these things and we say, nobody's perfect. Or at least I'm not, and you can fill in the blank. Or I'm not as bad as. When you and I look at the cross, we begin to see the horror of sin. When we look at the cross, I want you to hear this. When you look at the cross, we begin to see the horror of sin. There are many things in life that if we only have a casual glimpse of, or a casual knowledge of, we don't realize the effects that they have, how tragic and how devastating that they can be. We may say, oh yeah, it's too bad. But in our hearts, we say, oh, what's the big deal? It doesn't apply to me. It it doesn't touch me. For instance, drunk driving. We say, oh yeah, you shouldn't be a drunk driver. That's terrible, right? You shouldn't do that. I remember one day I was off a couple years ago and watching Oprah before she had her own network. Watching Oprah. And on Oprah that day, she had a family on there. I believe they were from Long Island, New York. And they were on there. Their whole family was on. And I believe some of the family members were police and some of the family members were firefighters. And they had been involved in a drunk driving accident. It was a wedding. It was a family wedding. And they had rented uh, limousines to take the wedding party to and from the wedding. And on their way home, after the reception, on their way home, they were hit head on by a drunk driver who was going the wrong way on an expressway. The little girl, there were different members of the family who were killed, but there was a little girl who had been a flower girl in the wedding. And she was in the back seat of the limo. And she was tired from, the day was so busy, she was tired. And she had laid down in the back seat. And the way that she laid, the, the seat belt moved up on her body. Upon impact, they hit with so much force that she was decapitated by the force that they hit. Her mother was on this, on Oprah's show. And she was talking And they shared the story that the little girl's head fell off the seat onto the floor. And the mom, you know, after the crash, the mom sat alongside that interstate, cradling her little six-year-old's head. And the police tried to take it away. And the fire and emergency personnel, she wouldn't let them have it. She was cradling this little child's head. And then in the midst of that, you see this mom and dad, as the family tells about it, 
You see this mom's just crying. You see this. You ever see that emptiness in people's eyes? That it's like they're dead. They're living, but they're dead. Then they showed the pictures of her just hours before at the wedding, running around with her little friends, holding the flowers as she walked down the aisle just hours before. And in an instant, their life was gone. You think of things like child molestation. Yeah, that's bad. But when you sit with a grown man or woman, and 30, 40 years later, they sob and cry over the devastation someone's selfishness has brought into their lives. And you begin to understand how deep the wound goes. See, uh, there's a lot of times that we see things and we say, well, yeah, that's bad or that's not good. But we're only seeing it from a distance. We've not taken the time to actually look at it and see what it does. What does divorce do to a family? What does it do to a husband and to a wife? What does deception do to a person? What happens when someone has a child or a parent who's been murdered? It's not just the taking of that person's life. It doesn't stop there. It goes so much further. And oftentimes, because we don't take the time to look at it, we don't understand actually the total impact that it has. May I suggest to you that when we take sin nonchalantly, we don't really have a grasp or an understanding of the impact that it has. Um, you may say, Pastor, I haven't killed anyone driving drunk. In fact, I don't even drink. I haven't raped anybody. But the Bible says, the Bible doesn't say that the wages of certain sins is death. It doesn't pick out one or two. It says that the wages of sin is death. But Jesus' death on the cross, when we talk about that, was much more than just having his heart stop beating and his brain waves no longer functioning. There's another dimension of death that he bore upon Calvary. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, and if you want to turn to Matthew 26, Matthew 26, verse 37. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus goes and he prays. It says, Matthew 26, verses 37 and 38. It says, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which would be James and John, with him. He dropped the other guys off a little bit, and he takes these three guys, and he goes a little further, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. We we realize that they fell asleep. But Jesus is saying, I need you right now. My soul, there's a... It would seem that Jesus was beginning, it was the beginning of the suffering and sorrow that would engulf him. He had always known fellowship with the Father. But now, he was going to experience this utter desolation and this darkness that began to settle in upon him. Henry Blackbee writes, Jesus was beginning to experience the extinguishing of his light and life as payment for sins of the world. 
the inevitable casting into outer darkness that God had warned in Scripture would happen to all who do not believe. The darkness utterly void of life and light. That is what was descending upon our Savior. An outer darkness where there is weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. This was the pathway the Savior walked. He walked that way in our place so that you and I never need to walk that way ourselves. Now, 1 Corinthians 5.13 says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Blackaby is writing, when he writes that, what he's talking about is that Jesus is going, he begins to experience this utter desolation that sin brings. He begins to experience this utter darkness that sin brings. That sin, whenever it brings death, it doesn't just bring a physical death where your heart stops beating and your brain waves no longer function. There's a death that sin brings that's much worse than that. As he mentioned, the scripture says that there's a death where they're going to be cast, that those people who reject Jesus Christ and reject faith in the Lord are going to be cast into outer darkness, utter hopelessness, where there's going to be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. What does it mean? What does it mean that Christ died for our sins? Does it mean that he just died? I want you to think about this. Does it mean that he just quit breathing for our sins? Is that all that his death was? Because I want you to know this. That's not all that the punishment for sin is. There's a punishment for sin. There's a consequence of sin that goes beyond a person stopping breathing. Okay? There's another dimension to that. Several times, I want you to think about this. Several times Jesus raised people from the dead. Throughout scripture, if you would take a look at that, you could see them. And when he did that, different times he would say to them all that he would say to them that they're asleep. Jesus referred to them as sleeping. And so you'd think, well, as you read that very quickly, you know, just gloss over it, you think, well, okay, well, did they really not die? That's a little confusing to us. And some examples of that in John 11. Jesus says about Lazarus, John 11, 11, our friend Lazarus sleeps. In Mark 5.39, Jesus told the crowd about the synagogue ruler's daughter. And he said, the child is not dead, but sleeping. So what? Was Lazarus in the tomb all wrapped up? And the guy said, was Lazarus just taking a nap? I don't think so. So did Jesus really not raise him from the dead? Was he just napping? No, I don't believe that, as I said. I want to suggest to you that there's more than just a death that comes from you stop breathing and your heart stops pumping and your brain waves quit functioning. Bodily death, the ending of the physical life, is only a secondary meaning of what Jesus is talking about. True death, ultimate death, is a far more significant experience with much more appalling and unspeakable, awful, horrible dimensions. Jesus said, because I want you to think about this, Jesus said in John chapter 8, 
Verse 51. I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So what is he saying? He says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Does he mean by that, that if someone keeps his word, and if we do the right thing, that we will live for 3,000 years? If we take death as just being one-dimensional, I don't want to get all weird on you, but if we take death as being only one-dimensional, okay, that means that my brain waves quit flowing, my heart quits beating, I stop breathing. If that's the only type of death, then Jesus is lying. Or else no one, no one in all of history has been able to keep his word at all, okay? Later in John 11, he told Martha, Lazarus' sister, in John 11, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? There's another dimension of death that Jesus took care of. Not just the physical beating, the stopping of our hearts. I've buried some wonderful saints. You see, because of what Jesus endured on the cross, it made it possible for you and I to escape the experience that Jesus himself endured for our sake. He went through the truest and deepest death so that you and I would never have to. What was it? That was eternal cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus experienced not just death over stopping breathing, but he experienced that total separation from the Father. He bore that punishment. Blackaby writes again, unlike the synagogue ruler's daughter and unlike Lazarus, Jesus did not just fall asleep. He actually died in the most absolute way possible. It was your sin and mine that gave his death that deepest, darkest dimension. It was your sin and mine. When sin is full grown, it brings death. The punishment for sin, the wages, the payment for sin is death. Not just physical death. That sense of utter hopelessness being cast out. Now, I want you to think about this. As we talk about, too, I want you to understand this. Jesus was made sin. That's another aspect of the cross. Christ was made sin. Matthew 27, verse 46. Matthew 27, verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the death that Jesus died for all of mankind. This horror of indescribable abandonment. Why have you left me? Isn't it something that Jesus in Gethsemane praying, you know, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Isn't it something that he said to the disciples? The verses that I read to you there at the beginning, whenever he spoke to them, he took Peter and James and John, and he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me, because he was understanding that sense of abandonment as the Father began to withdraw from him. Hmm? 
that darkness that began to settle in on him. Have you ever felt that sense of just complete hopelessness? The the most hopeless feeling that you have, the most abandoned feeling that you've ever experienced in your darkest days cannot come anywhere near to the experience that Jesus experienced upon the cross of Calvary for you and for I. Loneliness, hopelessness that just weighed in upon him. Now here's what I want you to understand. Whatever the penalty for sin requires... Jesus had to experience it to the uttermost degree. Does that make sense? He didn't take any shortcuts. In the future, we'll talk about the physical suffering that he experienced on the cross. But he didn't take any shortcuts. The price that was to be paid for sin, the price that was to be paid, he didn't take any shortcuts on that. In fact, Paul told the church at Corinth that because of sin... Christ became sin for us. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want you to look at that again. It said God made him, God the Father made him who had no sin, there was no defilement in him. He was perfect, pure, innocent, undefiled. By God's will, by God's discernment, by God's plan, he made him, meaning Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of of God. By God the Father's will, he made him, as I said, who had no sin to be sin for us, that so we would become the righteousness of God. The one who never sinned was made the essence of sin for us by the deliberate will of God the Father. I want you to think about that. That was the deliberate will of God the Father. Why do we tell people about Jesus? Because of the verse before it. I want you to look at the verse before it. Verse verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. We tell people about Jesus. Because he was made sin on their behalf. By God's will. So that they might become the righteousness of God. And that they might be reconciled to God. God did all of the work so that man could be reconciled to him. Sometimes I wonder, you know, I talk about becoming the righteousness of God. Sometimes I wonder how I can really be righteous. And maybe it's just me. Now, I got all these things that I don't do. But I can tell you one thing. I know they don't make me righteous. I can give you a huge list of things that I'm a good assembly of God boy and I don't do. But you know what? Not one of them, by not doing them, makes me righteous. Not one of them makes me pure and holy. That's just a list of things that I don't do. They don't make me holy. How can man be made righteous? Oftentimes I think about that, I almost feel like it's impossible. 
How can I, how can you really be made righteous? There again, I try pretty hard not to do a whole bunch of bad things. I got my list, and you have yours. And, I, and you know, I even have a list of good things that I do. I hope you have yours. They're good. But you know what? Those things don't make me righteous either. They're good things to do, but in themselves, they don't make me righteous. They don't make me holy. Wait, you mean to tell me, Pastor, we got our list of the bad things that we'd never do, and we got their list of the good things that we do, and we still don't feel righteous? We're still, those things still don't make us righteous? Yeah, absolutely. Kind of blows my mind. How can man be righteous? It almost feels impossible. Then I think of God being made sin. And I feel like that's impossible. Doesn't it? As I was studying this earlier, and, and uh, I think it was Tuesday, I was thinking about that thought that he who knew no sin became sin so that I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Wait, he who never knew sin became sin? There again, in my mind, it's, it's impossible to me. But because Jesus was made sin by the active work of the Father, we have the opportunity to be made righteous by that same very act. That he who knew no sin, that he who was perfect and holy, took on all of, he became, and the word says that he became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. As I said, it kind of, I can't really wrap my mind around that. How can God become sin but I struggle with the fact that how can man become righteous and it's through Christ's sacrifice. All of our sins fell upon the Savior and he endured it all so that you and I would not have to. The good news is that through the Savior dying, the sinner lives. The Savior dying, the perfect one dying, saves the sinner. Isn't that amazing? John chapter 129, John said, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God put upon him the sin of the whole world. The sin of all the world, from Adam and Eve till the last child who's born before the Lord's ultimate victory. God put upon Jesus, he put upon him, he bore upon him the sin of all of mankind. Do you know how horrible it feels whenever sin has you in bondage? you know how desperate you feel sometimes when you're made aware of that? Do you know how, you know the stronghold it feels sometimes whenever sin gets a grip of you? And you're just saying, I can't get free, I don't know how I'm going to get off this. I don't know how I'm going to get away from this. And Jesus experienced every pain and sorrow and weight of the sin of all of mankind was upon him. And he bore your sins and mine, the one who was perfect, making a way for you and I to be righteous in the sight of God. When we think about this horrible thing, when Jesus said, when he cried out, The scripture says he cried out with a loud voice just before, just before he gave up his spirit. What did he say? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
every weight, every punishment for sin, every pain that would ever be inflicted upon man because of sin was upon Jesus at that moment. It's almost like that sense of betrayal or abandonment that he was feeling. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he gives up, breathes his last breath. He paid that ultimate price. Now, here's the thing. How could you and I, when we understand the horror of sin, and we understand, and we'll get into a little bit more in the future, but we understand how sin separates people from God, how it brings them into a sense of utter hopelessness and helplessness. It's not just the pain that a person feels here on earth in their body. It's a pain, it's, it goes, a death that goes so much further than that. When we understand that Jesus paid that price and he became sin so that you and I could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. How could we possibly continue on in sin? How can we possibly, when we understand that I never thought of myself as being really righteous, but when I put my faith in what he did, I become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You mean to tell me, Pastor, when I look to that cross, when I look to that cross and believe in my heart, that what Jesus did upon that cross, and that God raised Jesus from the dead? You mean when I look to that, it's credited to my account as righteousness? Absolutely. Wow. You mean my righteousness is not based upon my list of things that I do and I don't? Righteousness is based upon what Jesus did on Calvary. And you're putting, I'm betting it all. Put it all. Everything I got. Let's get it all here. I'm putting it all on Jesus. I'm putting all of my faith, all my trust, all my hope in the fact, not in, oh, well, I've been good this week. I'm putting it all on the fact that he paid the price for my sins. And when I look to that cross, and when I look to what he did, if I believe upon him, if I trust in him, if I rely upon him, God will declare me as righteous. I never have to taste death. Oh, someday this body will deteriorate. The eyes will go. So I get a little older. The knees will go and the shoulders and the elbows. But you and I never... Because of what Jesus did, when we put our faith in him, we never have to taste of death. Most of us, should Jesus tarry, most of us, will, we will pass. We'll enter that death of sleep. When we close our eyes on this side, we'll open them in the presence of the Lord. We'll never have to see the punishment for sin. We'll never have to know that separation from God. We'll never have to know. We'll never have to know that darkness, that hopelessness, that sorrow, that grief, that life filled with eternity filled with regrets of torment and pain. We don't have to experience any of that because we've put our faith in what Jesus did upon Calvary. I'm telling you what, when you look to the cross, it gives us a vision. It gives us a picture about sin, of the horrors of sin. But it also gives us a picture of the power of God and the love of God for mankind. 
that Christ himself would take up our sins upon himself. Lord, I thank you that we don't have to taste death, that we've been purchased with the blood of the Lamb, that our sins have been forgiven, and that we have been made right with God. Lord, we're not going to taste of that death. And you willingly, because you valued us so much, you willingly took upon yourself my sins and the sins of my friends. How can we live in that any longer? How can we give in to that any longer when you've purchased us and you've paid the price for our sins? How can we trample that grace under? Lord, we don't want to do that. We want to live as the righteous men and women that you've created us because our faith is in the Lord Jesus. Be glorified, we pray, today in Jesus' name. Amen.